this morning, uh, we're going to start in Acts 27. It's a long reading this morning. Uh, we're going to cover the first 38 verses. So as you can tell, we're getting close to the end of our study in Acts. Um, actually, Pastor Copeland and I were discussing uh, this past week about what we may do next. We're not exactly sure. Maybe a book of the Old Testament since we haven't done one of those in a while. But um, So we shall discuss that. Y'all can be praying for us and decide what to pick up next because we only have a couple of more weeks left in this the study in Acts. So anyway, long reading this morning, so just be patient as I get through it. Uh, let's read those verses together. Acts 27, 1 through 38. <clears throat> And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Idromedum, we put out to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Y'all remember, that's the same Aristarchus who... And got caught up in the, the riot at Ephesus, if you remember. We talked about him. We met him some chapters ago. Same guy. Uh, and then the next day, we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off of Salamone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near the city of Lucia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. When the south winds blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called, I'll get this one right, Iraqida, there we go. And when, he had, and when the ship had, was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Claudia, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing that they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they, sailed, they, stuck, excuse me, they struck sail and were so driven. And because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we drew the ship's tackle, threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, 
and had not have sailed from Crete and incurred the disaster, this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, "Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that I, well, I believe God that it will be just as just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors sensed they were drawing near some land, and so they took soundings and found it up to be 20 fathoms. They had gone a little further, and they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, one, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. When the soldiers cut away, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, "Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you." And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when it was had been broken, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. And in all, there were 276 people on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Uh, Father, as we approach your word this morning father again we ask that uh, since you are the author that you be also be our teacher this morning father and uh, i pray that you will continue to use your word to to change us and to make us more like your servant christ in jesus name we pray amen okay so a long reading a lot of detail here um, and we're going to talk about that and the importance and the significance of that and all the detail that luke offered here uh, before we get with some, by way of a little bit of an introduction, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about archaeology. And there was a, a well-known archaeologist, William Foxwell Albright. The way R.C. Sproul put it was that he was to 20th century archaeology what Albert Einstein was to physics. So you can just imagine he was that kind of person. He was in a class by himself. Um, he was the first to date the Dead Sea Scrolls when they were found and located. In one of his last works, uh, he criticized his fellow scholars, people, scientists, people who were supposed to be learned and educated. He criticized them for their, quote, unbridled and unwarranted skepticism of the historical reliability of the scriptures. Okay, so they were challenging. They just didn't give any credit to what was given to us in the scriptures as far as from a historical perspective. He chided them for their lack of scientific in, uh, integrity. And in, again, in his words, they were uh, influenced too much by existential philosophy. And that's a big word that basically just, it's a study of philosophy that tries to explain everything in your existence without God. Okay, that's, ex- that's kind of what an existential philosopher wants to do. He wants to explain everything and not use God. So have fun with that. How do you explain your existence without God being there? But anyway, 
So he was saying that they were approaching history and just completely not considering the scriptures. They were not credible and not even to be uh, to be used. And again, he was his critique was they were influenced uh, too much by the modern philosophy. He he reminded them that the most significant test of historical reliability comes through empirical research, like what is done in archaeology. I mean, archaeology it's you dig and you find and you examine. I mean, it's something real that you find. And then you can make some assumptions and some, some hypothesis. But um, anyway, he was challenging them. Now, Dr. Sproul adds in this kind of this introduction of this point, he says that the ongoing criticism and assault against the Bible in our day is based on gratuitous hostility and not science. Okay, a lot of big words in there. But it's something that you and I both know is true because... Uh, when we talk about other realms of science, when we talk about evolution, which we've talked about in here, uh, they are totally, it, it's, it's anti-God. It's, it's not even logical a lot of times. They're so, they're so, their mind is so set against disproving God that they do crazy things. I mean, it just they take leaps of faith that we should never take. You know, it takes more for faith to be an atheist, really, um, because you just can't believe these things. But, but he's saying here that this, it's not true science. They're not really looking at everything that they have. And that's, I think, a lot of people uh, are guilty of that today. Um, it's, it's hostility towards God. It is not true science and approach to, to history. Of course, uh, archaeology can only prove so much. It has limitations. We all know that. Uh, some of, when we look at the Bible, some of the supernatural events uh, of the Bible cannot be dis- disproved or proved with archaeology. Uh, the visit of uh, the angel to Mary. Okay, we, okay, supernatural event. We can't prove or disprove that with archaeology. We can't. That, that, didn't, that didn't work. However, there is much in the Bible that can be uh, proved with a proper study of archaeology, uh, an objective uh, verification using historical methods. There's a lot of things here. Now, the point of that introduction is to say here, as we look in Acts 27. Uh, we see a, a, a remarkable account of the events that happened on the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the author of the book, Luke, was not a sailor. He is not a mariner. He is not experienced in these ways of, of sailing on the sea. Yet, historians have said that this recording of the events is masterful. That's the way Dr. Spruill described it. Masterful. The way he has recorded for us what happened on the sea. Um, he tells us exactly, or what he tells us is exactly what would have happened uh, on a ship that was caught in a tempest like the one uh, here on the Mediterranean Sea during these times. Everything that he details is exactly what they would have done. Uh, Luke's account, and, and Sproul noted that Luke's account here is even better than the ones found in Homer's Odyssey. Okay, I've never read it. I know it's a lengthy read, but I uh, said the details here are even better than that. Now, the techniques that Luke uh, described here, again, uh, the, the sailors of the day would have done exactly these things to guard against uh, shipwreck. The dragging of the anchors, uh, the use of the cables wrapped around the hull, uh, dealing with the wind, uh, the, sounding as, the soundings as they would have approached uh, the land. All of these things would describe. Um, by the sailors of this time. So last week, uh, we left off with 
Paul before Agrippa and Festus. And uh, y'all remember what, what took place uh, that week or last week. And then, so we read here in verse 1, we pick right up after that. And it says in verse 1, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. <clears throat> um, so Paul was given, uh, he was kept under guard. He's put in the, under the care of the imperial police and this one named Julius. Uh, and notice here in first one, this we see the use again of the pronoun we, the plural pronoun. Luke is back, has now joined uh, Paul. And uh, Luke's kind of been absent here on the narrative since chapter 21. Uh, but he had probably most likely been living uh, nearby and uh, so he could care for Paul uh, while he was imprisoned. And now he has rejoined Paul on this journey to go to Rome. So Paul and the others, including Luke now, uh, were put on board the ship from Caesarea and they would set, uh, first set sail towards the north, towards Sidon. Um, this first ship that they were on, if you, look, if you can find one of those maps, it shows, uh, you can kind of see how the path of the ship kind of hugs the coast. It really helps put these things together. But the first ship was a coastal ship, meaning what? It was not designed for the open sea. It couldn't take straight to Rome. It had to hug uh, the coastline. And so that's, uh, that's what they did. Uh, it hugged uh, right along the coast. Um, we also read in Paul's uh, second letter to Timothy, Timothy that he asked him to visit him before winter and to bring his cloak and his parchments. Now, why did Paul ask Timothy to visit him before winter? Well, that's going to make sense when we talk about their um, travel along the sea. The reason for that request was during winter or about from about the middle of October uh, through um, November, December, and sometimes of January, ships would stop sailing on the Mediterranean, the open sea, in other words. They would stop sailing because during those months, the waters were very dangerous. Okay, very dangerous during those times. And so, it's, and, and again, Paul understands this. And it's at this point in the trip, we're going to skip ahead to verse 10. Uh, it's at this point in the trip where Paul shares a warning with the crew. We see it here uh, in verse 10. It says, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo, but also of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. At that point, he was saying, hey, we need to stay in winter here. We do not need to consider moving uh, forward because heading out for Rome uh, at this time of the year on the open sea is very, very dangerous. However, uh, as you can, the, the crew talked to one another and uh, they, hey, they got cargo to deliver. There's money to be made. And we're going we're gonna to head on. We're going to try to make it to Phoenix, if you remember what they said. They want to try to make it a little bit further. We're going to try to go a little further in uh, winter there. In verses 11 and 12, it says, Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, of course, in their opinion, the majority advised uh, to set sail from there also. And it's by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. So this prisoner, Paul, whom some of them may have known who he was, and not a lot, obviously a lot of people didn't know who he was, but they didn't listen to him. So what you got to say, we're really not too worried about it. Um, what we know at this time, they had uh, picked up, an, uh, they were on another ship, and this ship was now a large one. Okay, this is a large ship. It's carrying uh, 276 people, is what Luke tells us. 
And so in their opinion, okay, we've got a larger ship, we've got a lot of people, uh, we think we can handle the winter weather, and we think we can make it to Phoenix. That's kind of part of what, uh, what their logic was behind their decision. And of course, Luke tells us at first, everything was good. We started off, the winds were favorable, and the voyage looks like it's going to be successful, and they headed off. Then things kind of um, kind of start breaking loose here. Uh, verses 14 through 17. It says, But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose, called, and this is Eurachlodon. Eurachlodon. There we go. And when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Claudia, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When we had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest we should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and were driven. So here's the introduction in these verses of where these sailors, okay, that the conditions have changed. Now they're doing everything they can. Uh, they, they're using all the tricks of the trade. Uh, they do everything they can to save the ship. What we know about Claudia. Uh, Claudia was an island about uh, 23 miles southwest of Crete. Uh, they were trying to take care, uh, take advantage of the shelter offered by the island. So the shelters, uh, excuse me, the sailors began to rig uh, the ship and getting it ready. Uh, they hauled in the ship's um, dinghy, the lifeboat. They they brought it in. They brought it on board. Um, they used uh, what Luke tells us. They used cables to undergird the ship. Okay, uh, this procedure was actually known as frapping. That was the that was what it was called, frapping. Uh, the cables would be wrapped around the hull, hull and then winched tight. And they, what the, the the goal was to help uh, to secure or to uh, to secure the ship and help it strengthen it, strengthen the hull, make it stronger as the winds and uh, the waves became stronger. And what about the search of sands? They said they were trying to basically avoid. Uh, they didn't want to run aground on the Sirtis sands. Well, this was a region of sandbars and shoals off of the coast of Africa. It was well known because it was feared uh, that a lot of ships had run aground there and had become destroyed. And and I think in um, what one I read one day, it was described as a graveyard of ships. So they knew that was a possibility. We wanted to avoid that. We don't want to go anywhere near there. So again, they lightened. The ship. They even threw the ballast overboard, and then they threw other equipment overboard. So they were doing everything they can to make us lighter, so we don't ride as deep in the water and ride higher. Um, and then it says they even threw uh, the wheat overboard, and nothing was happening. Nothing was getting any better. And then finally, here we see in verse twenty. It says, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. These professional sailors, these mariners, these experienced crew, had done everything that they know how to do. Everything. They were at the end of their rope. Everything had failed, and Luke tells us that they had given up all hope from being saved. And after a long time uh, without food, uh, Paul stands up and he says in verse 21, Men, you should have listened to me. Now, 
if when you first read that, does it sound kind of like I told you so? How many times have you been told that I told you so? Now, now, now if you've ever been told that, or if, and I'm sure you've told that to somebody, I know I have, or I have wanted to, and I told you so. Sometimes I try to, as the older I get, I'm a little bit wiser to try not to do that. <laughs> Uh, because that's difficult sometimes. Uh, but um, Dr. Sproul said, I don't think it was an I, to- I told you so kind of moment. Okay? He didn't think it was that way. It reads that way, and maybe what we would think. He says, I really don't think that's what this was. Okay? Rather, what was Paul trying to say? Paul was trying to say that, listen, what I shared with you earlier were not my own words. It wasn't that I told you so. That was a warning from God. That's what Paul was trying to say. It's not my words. I didn't. I don't have the ability to prophesy and tell the future on my own. God reveals these things to him. And so he reminded them that what he said was coming true. What I told you, what God revealed to me, what happened is now coming true. And so now he's about to make another prophetic announcement. In verses uh, 22 and uh, 24, it says, And this is Paul, And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So the first announcement from God was, or this first perception that, that Paul, or the, the announcement that Paul shared was, hey, I think we shouldn't set sail. We might even lose our lives here. An angel of the God has now come and said, you're going to, go to, you're going to be before Caesar as well as everybody with you. Now notice when Paul mentions God, Paul did not, speak of uh, the God who rules over the sea. He didn't speak of the God of heaven and earth or the God of all creation. He said, what did he say about God? He spoke of the God to whom he belongs. That's what he said. That's how he described God. When he said, he said, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Well, that is typical of Paul. Uh, if we're we're familiar with a lot of his letters, um, in his letters, so many times he talks about and teaches about divine ownership, who you belong to. Now, in the Old Testament, we read uh, uh, many things about uh, the earth, and in Psalm twenty-four, we read that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. God has created it all. It all belongs uh, to Him. God owns everything. There's nothing you can give to Him that He didn't own first. Everything that is here was created by Him. And so He has ownership over everything. But Paul talks about a special kind of ownership, doesn't he? Uh, When he is talking about a believer. When he's talking about a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, what does Paul say? You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. That is a, 
That is a special kind of ownership. This is not a general kind of thing. This is very, very special when it comes to uh, the believer. Um, When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, remember how he introduced himself in the beginning. He says, I, as Paul, he described himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. So we see him refer to himself as a bondservant. Now, some, some translations use the word servant instead of bondservant. Um, Sproul added, I prefer the term bondservant. That is a better uh, description um, because servants can earn wages. Um, they can kind of come and go. They have some freedoms. But a bondservant is a slave. A bondservant is a slave. And so Paul is saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That the word slave conjures up all kinds of negative connotations. Um, and understandably, considering where we live uh, in the history of what it means to be a slave in this country. Okay? But um, the word Paul here, an apostle, describes himself as just that, a slave of Jesus Christ. The word church comes from uh, a Greek word, which means those who are the possession of the curious. And if you know that, just know the Greek word, it says basically, or those who belong to the Lord. So the, the root, the, basically the meaning of the word church, those who belong to the Lord. Ownership, divine ownership. And that is exactly what uh, the true church is, not necessarily the visible church. We're talking about the true church here. Uh, they are the possession of God. They, are, they belong to God. They are, in fact, the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember, at uh, the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus said these Difficult words, things that are very hard uh, to read. Jesus said that many would say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Scary words from Jesus Christ, from our Lord. Because there are many who believe that they are in the church. And they probably are in the visible church. They sit in church pews every Sunday morning. Their name and the name of their families is on the membership roll. But they are not part of the true church. They're not saved. They haven't been saved. And these words from Jesus, these, these, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago about the repetition of a, of a name. Remember, we said the significance of that. Uh, this, this when, 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 when Jesus is standing before these people and they say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? They earnestly believed they were saved. But they weren't. They weren't saved. What was the implication of what they said? Basically, it was that it was a word for righteousness. Look what we did. Look what we did. Do this. And they were depending on that to sway Jesus to accept Yes. It was very much so. And adding on to what uh, Brother Jim just said, yes, that behind those questions, well, Lord, look what we did for you. 
Now we've we've talked about that many times in this church and in this Sunday school class. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Not one thing. There's not one thing you can stand before Jesus and say, "Look what I did," and now I'm okay. Why? Because Jesus' righteousness is completely perfect, and yours is not. It is nowhere close to perfect. Even the best things you do are not good. You're not good enough. We hear a lot of people today um, when they ask, uh, and I, I admit I've asked this before too, uh, of people um, when you're speaking to maybe a, a non or somebody you meet for the first time, or maybe you have an opportunity to ask this question and ask them, "Do you know Jesus?" Right? I, I've asked that before. I've asked people that, "Do you know Jesus?" Or uh, something very similar to that. Uh, and based on what we just read here, okay, based on what we just read from Jesus' words from His own mouth in the Sermon on the Mount, a better question is, does Jesus know you? Because what did He just say? These people up here knew Jesus, right? Or so they thought. They knew Jesus. But Jesus says what? Depart from me, I never knew you. And that's a different relationship. So a better question is, does Jesus know you? Because the issue is not if we possess Christ, but does Christ possess you? Does he, does he have you in the palm of His hand? Because that's what matters at the end of the road, at the end of time. That's what matters. That's what matters at the end of your life. Does Christ possess you? We're building out this idea of ownership. Okay, divine ownership. That's what we're. That's why we're here. We're here still talking about what Paul was talking about, the God whom I serve and who I belong to. Okay? Another metaphor that Jesus has used uh, many times was that of a sheep and a shepherd. Um, notice Jesus said, I am the shepherd. In other words, He is not a hired hand. He's the owner of the sheep. Right? A hired hand uh, can do a good job sometimes of watching someone as a sheep, but at the end of the day, there's someone else that they don't belong to Him. Jesus says, I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The sheep belong to me. And I know the sheep. I know each one of them by name. Because as Jesus said in John 6, all the Father has given to me will come to me. Every one that the Father has given to me will come to me. We've been talking a little bit about this on Sunday night when we're talking about election and about the way people come into the kingdom. And the Father knows everyone by name. And He decided that before the foundation of the world. It was decided who would be His. And He has given every one of them to His Son. And He is the Good Shepherd. And the Son will not lose anyone. Not one. The only reason that you and I have as to why we are in the kingdom of God is because the Father gave us to the Son. That's the only reason we have. The Father was has given you to His Son to be one of His. We are His sheep and we belong to Him. And that comes with a mission. We are to be about His mission. So Paul says he's been giving a message. Okay, we, we're, I'm going to try to move on here past ownership. Paul says he's been giving a message from the angel of God whom I belong and whom I serve. Does that sound redundant? Whom I belong and whom I serve. How can someone belong to Jesus and not serve Him? Well, let's, let's look a little bit at that. Okay, let's look a little bit closer. Um, you know, and the question that Sproul posed very directly, and we can depose it to me and depose it to every one of you here this morning, are you serving Christ with your life? 
That's an honest question. Do you serve Him? Do you serve Christ with your life? And He will follow it up. If you don't, then you don't belong to Him. Mm, heavy. You know, the other shoe drops. The other shoe is like, whoa. You know, um, heavy. Because as R.C. says, you cannot belong to Christ unless you serve Him with your life. The life Paul was describing was not unique to him. He, he was, Paul, yes, called an apostle. Yes, gifted by God to do the work. But the, the things that he described in terms of his life and ownership, that is a call for all Christians. All believers who belong to him are called to serve him with their life, just as Paul. And so the angel told Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And that's what Paul told them in the first place, wasn't it? He knew he would make it to Rome because why? Because God had told him that he would make it to Rome. The only reason the sailor would be saved was that God showed mercy to them for for Paul's sake. They're on the ship. That's the only reason these guys are even going to be saved. And and we know that if there is any uh, salvation, then it is from God. If there's any rescue, if there's any salvation, then it is from God. And that salvation, we know, is from His God's... God is saving you from Him, from God. Okay, that's what salvation is from. Because if you're not saved, then you experience God's wrath and His judgment for eternity. God's in salvation is saving you from Himself. Now, we're not saved... Simply for our own sake. So that our life will be easy. And that you can go and live a good life. That's not why God saved you. We are saved for Christ's sake. We're saved and we're given a mission. You are drafted into the army. You didn't have a choice. You, well, you, I won't talk about that. You kind of did, but let's don't go there today. But you were elected, okay? It was there and you were, you're coming into uh, the kingdom. And you were saved for His sake. For His mission. And um, here in this situation, uh, the providence of God, we see it at work. And so because God's a merciful God, He's got a plan. He knows exactly where He's got for Paul to do. He extends that mercy to the entire crew. Because the whole crew is going to be saved. But you've got to stay together. You can't get off the ship. You've got to get kind of salvation on a ship. Does that sound on a boat? Does that sound familiar? You've got to be in the boat to be saved, right? Back in Genesis. You've got to be in the boat. Um, but anyway... Let's continue on because we're going to start to run out of time. Verse 25. Paul continues. Therefore take heart men, for I believe God, for I believe God that it will be just as he just as it was told me. I'll read that again because I messed it up. Therefore take heart men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Now Sounds like a simple statement here from Paul, um, but believing in God and believing God are two different things. Okay, let me see, repeat that again. Believing in God, believing that He exists, and believing God are two different things. It's, it's very easy to believe that God exists. Okay? Uh, God has revealed Himself in all sorts of ways. Okay, that are common to every man. Uh, he's made him. He's revealed himself plainly in, in creation, uh, and and his word tells us that that every man knows there's a God. 
And but they what do they do? They deny that he exists. Uh, and anyone, of course, who denies that God exists is, in fact, a liar. The Bible says in, in Psalm fourteen one that the fool says in his heart there is no God. The one who stands and says there is no God is actually a fool. I didn't I didn't know this. Uh, Sproul said in his commentary. I, I didn't look this up. I mean, I believe him because it's Doctor Sproul. You know, <laughs> he said that we have a national. And I don't know if he was a. It was more of a joke. I I need to look this up. But he says we have a national atheist day. It's. Uh, did you know that we have a national atheist day? It's April first, April Fool's Day. Uh, again, I don't think that's that's a real thing, but. <laughs> But it, you know, I, when I read it the first time, I'm like, "Is that really? I, I need to look that up." You know, did, is that does that really happen? Um, but we know here that uh, it does. It, it's, the, the word says that a fool says in his heart, "There is no God." And and so, if anyone can believe, uh, or, or anyone can believe that God exists, again, it's it's a difference between believing that He exists and believing God. So, believing in God, believing that He's there, is really not that hard. What's difficult is believing God. That's where it gets difficult. Now Paul told the crew that none of them would die. He said, I'm, listen, the God to whom I belong, whom I serve, said none of you are going to die. Now he believed God. And he believed that God would do exactly what he said he's going to do. Now, Dr. Sproul asked this question. He says, brothers and sisters, do you believe that about your life? Said, do, do you believe that? That God will do exactly what He said He will do? Do you believe that about your life? God has never said, God has never told any one of us that we will not go through the valley of the shadow of death. But, He has said that when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be there with you. Now, do you believe that? Some of you have been there. Some of you have experienced this and you have witnessed God being with you. And I'm sure you were encouraged, even though it was a difficult time. Some of us have never really experienced this, been in the valley of the shadow of death. But it very, it, it very well may happen. Do you believe that God will be there with you? Your Savior, Jesus Christ, will be there with you. And in the middle of those circumstances, the valley of the, I mean, it's like you might die. I mean, that's, I mean it, it could be a, a, a one time, it could be a, an isolated incident, it could be uh, years of, of who knows, depression, it could be all kinds of spiritual warfare, it could be all sorts of things that take you to the valley of the shadow of death. But do you believe that Jesus is there with you? Jesus encouraged his friends when he was about to leave them, when he was about to be crucified in John 14 with these words. And you all know these words. They're read most times at funerals. They should be read more, at more times in funerals. But Jesus said this, Let not your heart be troubled. For in my house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus always does what He says He's going to do. Do you believe that? So what happened on the ship here? Okay, these circumstances, this whole episode. 
What happened to the ship and to the crew is exactly what Paul said was going to happen. It's exactly what he said. Well, not everyone on the ship believed Paul. But because we, Luke tells us that some of them took the skiff, right, the lifeboat, and they're going to let it down and they're going to, they're going to take care of themselves. They're going to save themselves. But Paul stopped them. And he says, if they go in the lifeboat, they'll never make it. They've got to stay on the ship if you want to survive. That's what Paul said. The centurion agreed with Paul, believed Paul. Um, he cut the lifeboat loose, loose and he trusted the Word of God who alone could save them. Now there's a lesson. There's a lot of lessons here. But remember, we, we, we went about all this, these things and Luke describes this whole incident in great detail from experienced sailors and mariners on the sea. They had been given a word from God. They did not listen. They tried everything they knew how to do to save themselves. Everything. And they got to the end of their rope and all hope was lost. And then the centurion listens to Paul. Then, when they had done everything, they had heard a word, didn't listen, didn't listen to God. How many times have you heard from the Lord and you didn't listen? And you try to manage the circumstances of life the best you know how to do. And none of it works. And you get to the end of your rope. And you have nowhere to go. Matthew Henry had a wonderful way of describing this. Um, and it's, we'll, we'll end with this today. The means the sailors used did not succeed. But when sinners give up all hope of saving themselves, they are then prepared to understand God's Word and to trust in His mercy through Jesus Christ. When you get to the end of yourself, when you're like those that we were talking about who stood before Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not? They were trusting in themselves to save themselves, in their works. These sailors were trusting in their works to say, hey, I hear you, Paul. We got this. We can handle this. I can do this myself. They got to the end. None of it worked. None of it worked. Only then, when you get to the end of yourself, and you're prepared to hear God's Word and understand it and believe it. Let's, uh, we're out of time, so let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time this morning. Father, again, uh, we ask that You use Your Word as we have it here. And uh, Father, change it uh, and change our hearts that we may hear what You have to say and listen to You, Father. And more than listen, but to believe. Father, believe God. Give us the faith in the everyday circumstances of life um, to believe You and to trust You. Father, and to be about your work in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.